afternoon and welcome to the 87th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I talk with Denise Ross and Allison Plyer. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 21st, 2020, there are 14,774,887 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 14,604,077 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 3,858,686 are in the United States. That's up from 3,804,907 yesterday. There are now a total of 141,426 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 140,811 yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Lynika Strozier, who researched early plant DNA, dies at 35. This appeared in the New York Times, June 19th, by Richard Sandomir. For the last 15 years of her short life, Lynika Strozier dedicated herself with increasing fervor to a career in science, much of it as a researcher at the Field Museum in Chicago, where she delicately extracted DNA from early land plants. The plants we deal with are often old and fragile. Some are small as an eyelash, Matt von Conrad, the museum's head of botanical collections, said in a phone interview. Others threw up their hands and gave up on these experiments, but Lynika persevered. He added, she had golden hands. During her time at the museum, Miss Strozier discovered another passion, mentoring young people, and in January left to teach ecology and evolution at Malcolm X College in Chicago. She died of complications of COVID-19 on June 7th. The museum said she was 35. A GoFundMe campaign has raised more than $52,000 for her medical and funeral expenses and to establish a scholarship to support young scientists. Lainika Charlize Strozier was born on August 28, 1984, in Birmingham, Alabama, and moved to Chicago with her mother, Angela Strozier, when she was a baby. But her mother's drug addiction meant that she had to live mainly with her grandmother, Sharon Wright. Lainika was nine when Miss Wright became her legal guardian. Angela Strozier died of an overdose in 2005, Miss Wright said. Lainika had a severe learning disability that made math and reading to herself and aloud difficult. People would tell me she's got a learning disability. Go get a social security check for her, Miss Wright said in an interview. I said, she's not getting a check. She's going to learn. At Miss Wright's urging, Lainika worked with a reading instructor and took summer classes. She turned to science in about 2005 at the suggestion of an administrator at Truman College in Chicago, where she was a student. She was soon working in a lab tending to a hamster ovary cell line. 
research and experiments she found built her confidence as nothing else had. It took a while for her to grasp science, but once she did, whoa, Miss Wright said. In addition to her grandmother, Miss Strozier, who was profiled by the Chicago Tribune after her death, is survived by a brother, Marcus. She started at the Field Museum in 2009 with a summer internship in which she sequenced the DNA of lichens. She later did research on the DNA of ants and birds. She was an incredible role model for minority students and women scientists, Dr. von Conradsen. Ms. Strozier graduated from Dominican University outside Chicago with a bachelor's degree in biology. She then earned two master's degrees in 2018, one in biology from Loyola University, Chicago. Her thesis was about the connection between biodiversity and the geographical distribution of birds in Madagascar, and a second master's in science education from the University of Illinois, Chicago. I went from this third grader who could barely read, she said in an interview with Dr. Von Conrad in 2018 at an event celebrating the 125th anniversary of the field, to taking apart science journals, writing a 90-page master's thesis, and defending and passing my thesis defense. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today, and I'm really excited to introduce my two guests today. Denise Ross is director at the National Conference on Citizenship and a fellow at Georgetown's Beck Center. Her recent focus is on data quality in the 2020 census, and she also provides strategic support for the State Chief Data Officer Network. Denise comes to this work from New America, where she studied the power of networks to advance progress on big challenges. As a Presidential Innovation Fellow in 2014-15, she co-founded the White House Police Data Initiative to increase transparency and accountability and worked with the Department of Energy to improve community resilience in disaster-impacted areas. Earlier, she served as Director of Enterprise Information for the City of New Orleans, establishing their Open Data Initiative, now recognized as one of the most successful in the country. Prior to government, Denise co-directed the Data Center of Southeast Louisiana, a nonprofit data intermediary. She brought a data-driven approach to numerous post-Katrina community planning initiatives and co-founded the first new child care center after the storm. My second guest is Allison Plyer. She's the chief demographer for the Data Center of Southeast Louisiana. Dr. Plyer is co-author of the New Orleans Prosperity Index, which examines the extent to which economic outcomes have improved for Black New Orleans since the end of the civil rights era. She is also author of the New Orleans Index series, developed in collaboration with Brookings to analyze the state of the recovery post-Katrina and later to track the region's progress towards prosperity. She served as an editor for the Brookings Institution press volume entitled Resilience and Opportunity, Lessons from the U.S. Gulf Coast after Katrina and Rita. Allison is an international expert in post-Katrina demographics and disaster recovery trends and frequently provides commentary on recovery and development to media such as NPR, the AP, the New York Times, and USA Today. Allison received her doctorate in science from Tulane University and has an MBA in marketing in organizational behavior from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management. Denise and Allison, thanks for coming on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. I'd like to remind people you can get your questions into COVID calls. You can just put them into the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter and just tag at US of Disaster, or you can email me directly during the call, sgk23 
at drexel.edu. So I'd like to start the way I always do and just find out where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is looking like there today. Denise, could I start with you, please? Yeah. Hi. Um, so I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. We're in the, a suburb of D.C. And uh, things are trending better here. Um, personally, I had two family members in the area get it um, a few weeks ago from the air conditioning repair person who never entered their house. So that was uh, that that hit really close to home and was uh, quite quite scary. Um, yeah, in New Orleans, um, you know, in New Orleans, I'm in New Orleans, and, and New Orleans was one of the um, early hotspots um, that had case rates as high as New York early on. And, um, you know, we really shut down in a very aggressive way. New Orleanians were really cooperative and really flattened the curve, as they say. Um, the Some of the neighboring parishes um, have, you know, um, uh, have had higher case rates recently, really escalating rapidly, um, and things are starting to increase a bit more in New Orleans as well now. So, um, you know, we've start, we've reclosed bars across the state and a number of other measures to try to bring the rates down again. Thank you both for giving us uh, those those status reports where you are, Denise. I hope that your family members recovered. Yeah, we got okay. lucky. <laughs> um, thank you for. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and so, I mean, you both have such uh, really interesting uh, backgrounds, you know, and we're going to talk about COVID-19. We're going to have a lot to discuss today. I want to just talk a little bit about your your background. Um, Denise, if I can just start with you again, say a little bit more about your pathway to um, working on the kinds of issues you work on today. And I noticed in there your, your work um, with the White House and on this police data initiative. Could you talk a little bit about that? I can. And, um, you know, for I think for a lot of us who went through Katrina in New Orleans, all stories now go back to Katrina. <laughs> and so. Um, well, I know I didn't want to assume anything, but I saw that crossover point in your in your backgrounds. And I made that assumption. But I'm glad you brought that up. So start yeah, wherever yeah, you like. Absolutely. So. Um, so starting um, starting with Katrina, when Allison and I were working together at the data center, data center, um, what we found for the recovery was that having a common base of shared information um, really helped change the dialogue. So instead of arguing about the facts, people could talk about what the solutions were if they had shared information. Um, about five years into the recovery, I realized that um, we were missing a big piece of the data in order to inform an equitable recovery, and that data needed to come out of City Hall. So when Mayor Landrieu was elected, I jumped inside of City Hall and started liberating high-value data. And some of the highest-value data there was data on code enforcement. So what was happening with the, the blighted properties that were um, that were uh, overtaking the city? And, um, and you know, and, and as many many disasters are, this problem was bigger than government, and so we needed to align public and private efforts to tackle the blight challenge. And so we partnered with Code for America. And they came in and they helped integrate all of these different data systems that could um, give insights into what was happening with a specific property um, in the city. And I remember being at the first city council meeting after that. And um, for the first time since the storm, someone, someone got up and complained about a property, 123 Main Street, and everyone looked it up on the same website. <laughs> and so for the first time ever, we had 
we had a common base of information. And so you had the city council members, you had the person who was, was standing up front complaining about the property, you had the staffers, you had the blight czar, all were seeing the same, the same data. Um, and that was really transformative, I think, for our recovery. So fast forwarding to when I was in the White House, um, when uh, I, I joined uh, the, the White House just a month after the police killing of Michael Brown, and a colleague of mine, Clarence Wardell, and I were talking and we're like, gosh, you know, people don't, we, we don't have any idea. Is police violence getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it worse in some parts of the country? And so we thought we'd use a similar play to what we used in New Orleans, where we create a common base of shared information to start a national dialogue about policing. And that's what we did. We, we identified a, a couple, a, a dozen police chiefs to come to the White House and commit to opening data. Um, a year later, we had more than 50 on board. And by the end of the administration, there were 100 police chiefs who had re collectively released more than 250 data sets on police use of force, officer-involved shootings, citizen complaints, that type of thing. Does that work? Uh, what has been the impact of that work as we've gone through these last few months with George Floyd then? <sighs> yeah. Um, so... The, the good news is, is that we're at a different place now. Um, when, when we started this work in 2014, there were zero data sets that were open, machine-readable, structured data about officer-involved shootings, police misconduct, and whatnot. Um, and now it's very prevalent in modern police departments to be publishing this data. Um, we, you know, we, Clarence and I have been talking about what the next generation of this looks like. Um, and it, it really is, is a um, more of an audacious transparency where police departments are, are you know, recognizing that this is the people's data in order to have a conversation about what the policing of the future looks like. You have to know where we are and the police departments are the only ones who hold that data. Um, so uh, so we're, we're starting to pick up um, that work again. And, uh, but this time there's, there's a lot more demand from the public for it. Um, with, when Boston, um, uh, af after the administration changed, Boston, the city of Boston um, stopped publishing their data on stop, stop and frisk incidents. And uh, when asked about it, they, they said that nobody had been using it. So therefore, they thought it wasn't worth their time to publish it. <laughs> um, I think we're in a different situation now where people will be using the data. Um, and this, that's the best type of accountability we can have is to start the, the conversation from, from that point of um, reduce the asymmetry. Allison, let me bring you in. Same question, get a little bit of your background. Maybe we should start again with, with Katrina. I just, as a parenthetical, Denise, for disaster researchers, for both of you, we also usually, everybody, ask them when they start doing their work, there's some sort of a disaster origin story. And for a great number of them, it is it is Katrina. Allison, is, is that when you started doing this kind of work or were you doing it before that? No, that's when it started. Yeah, Denise and I worked together at the data center in New Orleans before Katrina, starting in about 2001, mm -hmm. and um, had put together a website that was um, using the highest demand data, um, but in a way that was really accessible for folks with um, low, you know, slow internet speeds, um, you know, poor, low computer skills, really democratizing the data written in, in highly rigorous data, but written in lay language so everybody could really understand it. We, we did a lot of usability testing to make sure that that um, that our, our folks in our community could use it, and it was wildly popular. Um, and then when Katrina hit, um, it turned out, uh, you know, this was all before the cloud, and so our server was in Kentucky. And so our, our website stayed up when 
Um, you know, the city of New Orleans website went down, all the major universities' websites went down in town. Ours was virtually the only information. And it turns out that experts really like data when it's highly <laughs> usable and written in lay language. They like it even better than, um, than you know, the way they're actually, I think, trained to write about it and display it. So um, so we, we started partnering with all kinds of federal agencies and, and then in particular the Brookings Institution to develop um, metrics of disaster recovery in for New Orleans to really help inform, you know, as Denise said, get a common understanding of the overview context, right, of what was happening. So different entities could start prioritizing better, come together around solutions, yeah. stop arguing about facts and start um, talking about solutions. And um, we had a lot of impacts with that as well um, that we've documented through various external evaluations. The state used it for, um, for starting to emphasize renters and not just homeowners, who renters also, you know, have an incredible burden in a, in a disaster like Katrina. Um, philanthropy used it to really have, feel more certain about what was going on so they could invest in New Orleans. Um, it, start, it, it catalyzed an entire um, city department uh, around increasing employment for black men in the city. So the blight was something that we tracked as well. We, so there were a number of things that were really key issues that were informed by the data that we analyzed and put forward. Something so striking to me about this, and it's often how I, I, I think about emergency management being one of the most impossible jobs that there is to do, because in the midst of a disaster, the public expects emergency managers to not only make sure that there's you know, clean drinking water available, but also to deal with, let's say, um, Jim Crow. And can you also deal with, uh, you know, you know, failing school system? I mean, the, the accrual of inequality is exposed in the midst of a disaster. And then we sort of look around and say, well, who's going to solve this right now in this in this moment? I mean, the way you described all of this, these metrics that become available post Katrina, Allison, it, it's not that they weren't available before, right? I mean, what what's the key insight through disaster that then spurs new ways of thinking about how to mobilize that that data? Well, you know, disasters create such a break in the status quo that rumors start to circulate, right? And I think now that, you know, everybody in the country has experienced the COVID disaster, um, which has multiple uh, manifestations, but we know what this means, right? It's an immense break in the status quo. And then we start just hearing rumors and trying to make decisions based on anecdotes and rumors because whatever we all agreed was true, or at least, you know, large groups of people agreed was true is just, is just changed. And so then there's an an immense demand for data. Actually, people want better clarity about, you know, how do we solve these problems? How do we start to address them? So um, actually the demand for data goes up, even though sometimes there isn't the data that you would like. Um, right away. Uh, and that can be very, very frustrating. But the demand goes up even if, if the data isn't available. So we, the key is to try to meet as much of that demand as you can as quickly as possible to really inform decisions so that they're data-based. One of the things you worked on after Katrina was this New Orleans Prosperity Index. Can you say a little bit about that? And I'm sort of curious if other cities have picked up on that that instrument as well. Yeah. So the Prosperity Index... Um, was something we decided to do for the city's tricentennial, which was 2018, two years ago. The city turned 300 years old. And, you know, as New, it's New Orleans. And so, of course, we have, you know, uh, great interest in celebrating 300 years. And yet we realized, you know, for a city that's primarily, you know, 
majority African-American. Reflecting on 300 years in New Orleans includes 150 years of slavery, followed by 100 years of Jim Crow. Mm. So this is not a, a lot of happiness to reflect on. And so we thought, well, let's look at, have um, conditions gotten better for African-Americans in New Orleans since the end of the civil rights era when Jim Crow essentially ended, right? Um, and so we started, we tracked a number of metrics um, looking at economic inclusion, looking at um, health outcomes, looking at home ownership, looking at criminal justice, some major metrics, kind of like um, we do with the, the new publication we've just put out, um, and to give an overview. And then we had scholars actually write um, essays for each of those topics around real estate and African-Americans access to real estate and what that's meant in terms of wealth accumulation, right? And what were the, I mean, that one was one of the most, um, all of the essays were very impactful, but the one that um, I've been reposting lately that's really gotten a lot of traction is one called Rigging the Real Estate Market. And it looks at, you know, all the policies and when they started that really um, excluded African-Americans from home ownership and how home ownership has become an amazing wealth generator for um, the white middle class. It really created the white middle class in many ways. And African-Americans have been excluded from that and continue to be excluded just from, from getting homes in neighborhoods where they might build wealth. Um, and when you see how our policies set that up, even at the federal level, it's, it's really stunning, you know, to sort of see this in terms of the jail and, and how, you know, the inmates in the jail over time were, time and time again were used as free labor, right? And isn't that contrary to ending slavery, using inmates for free labor or, or very, very minimally comp compensated labor, right? So looking at bail and how it was, um, it was originally um, that, that um, having a, a, a white man who owned land signing for you and saying, yes, I vouch for this gentleman, he will show back up at court. Um, but then all of a sudden it turned into this this pauper's prison, right? Anybody who didn't have money to pay just got thrown in jail. And we still do that today, even though that's contrary to our constitutional values. So we looked at a number of different sources of this kind of inequity that I think has become uh, a greater part of the American conversation in the last couple of months. Um, and we found it really was uh, instrumental in driving um, important conversations in New Orleans over the last two years. Well, thank you for explaining that. It's such a powerful method, not only to give a snapshot um, of where things are today in certain key measures, but also to root them, ground them historically. I mean, as a historian, obviously, I'm going to see that as an important methodology, but we're confronted by this. Denise, I want to sort of ask you about this in this moment as we turn a little bit to thinking about COVID. Um, we've been inundated by data. Um, you know, so many um, publicly accessible uh, some cases kind of pretty esoteric uh, instruments and <laughs> dashboards and reports and various things. Yeah. And I, I have worried about that a little bit because it does seem to assume several things. One is that somehow that information is just out there and easy to get and we can just grab it when we want. I worry a little bit about that because what you both just described is actually the hard work and dedication that it takes to bring data to the public. <laughs> the other is... Um, is sort of the maybe the inverse of that a little bit is if it's if it looks the way it maybe looks on your phone or something it's a little too easy doesn't it then make it um, easy for people to make mistakes or not fully understand the 
the sort of complicated <laughs> nature yeah. of what this data may be revealing. So it's a little much to ask you for your whole philosophy of civic data, but I think I'm asking for it, Denise. Can you tell us a little bit about how we should be seeing this moment in data and disasters? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. And um, you are right, we're, we're sort of starving at a banquet of data right now. There's almost too much data. Um, and so, uh, so the, the challenge that, you know, that I, I think we have is how do you curate, curate that data so it's ready for decision makers at the right time in the right format. And, um, and certainly one theme that, that we see across open data and civic data is the need to fortify data against misconceptions. Um, and so, so we saw this a lot in, in policing, for example, um, the police departments were concerned that if they release a data set um, that's that's very complex, that requires subject matter expertise um, to interpret, that it might be misinterpreted by a journalist and then sort of take on a life of its own. And um, and so that's why uh, what we what we've done, what Allison and I have done for the last fifteen years, is we spend a lot of time just on one indicator. Mm-hmm. And we'll make one graph, and then we'll spend you know, a bunch of time fortifying that indicator against being misunderstood. Um, so a little bit of data, lots of explanation in a very easy to um, easy to understand way. And what I will add, um, I've been working with this fantastic epidemiologist. Um, for my census work, I, I, uh, I zeroed out my travel budget <laughs> and, <laughs> and hired an epidemiologist, you know, who, who would know that that's what, we, what we'd need, but we do. Um, and he really laments that, that the data are so technically so easy to get at, and there's so many visualizations that the expertise of epidemiology is sort of lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think that that must resonate across. I know we have a lot of epidemiologists and public health folks who participate in COVID calls and we've had as, as guests, and there's a bit of a bind there. I mean, you do want the public to have this, this data. Um, and to ask critical questions, but also there's still a place for expertise. And that's a sort of a dance always in disasters, I guess, particularly with disaster recovery, when you want to you know, empower citizens to take recovery into their own hands. But also um, there are some moments in which you need expert analysis to, to say, you know, uh, is this working or not working? Is this healthy or not? Not healthy. So I want to just we're going to turn now to talking about today's a big day. You had a, a new publication come out, a new report come out at the National Conference on Citizenship. Um, could one of you say a little bit about what this organization is? And the publication is the From Pandemic to Prosperity, Chronicling the Path from Response to Recovery. I have a lot of specific questions for you about it, but let's <laughs> just back up one step and tell us a little bit about this organization. Yeah, so this was a, a really wonderful place for me to land to do the census work I've been doing um, because the, 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 fe- the origin story of NCOC is that it was, it's a congressionally chartered organization that was, that was founded by Truman and Eisenhower to maintain the momentum, the momentum of civic engagement after World War II. Um, and, and we know, you know, after Katrina, after disasters, like there's a great, there's a, you know, they're, they're, uh, the citizenry rises up and helps each other and is like more engaged than ever. And so how do you maintain that um, in a way that, that doesn't, um, uh, that is sustainable? And, uh, and so certainly with, um, 
with this pandemic, a couple months ago, I called Allison and I was like, hey, I, I think we need to start doing what we did in New Orleans, um, but, but do it for the pandemic. And the thinking here is everyone's so focused right now on the response and those graphs, right? The, the flattening the curve graphs that we've seen so many of them and, and the data are, are um, you know, updated daily and people are wondering why there was a jump, you know, is it a backlog or um, is, you know, is it a weekend? Like why, you know, why are the data jumping all around? And so we thought it would be really helpful to just step back and create a data series that has a monthly cadence so we can look across a variety of indicators because we know this isn't just about the, the biological impact of COVID and, it, and the effect it's having on the economy. We know that there are many intersectional issues at play here, including how well our governments are functioning, um, what our tax revenues, what resources states have to bring to bear. Um, and, and there's, meanwhile, some really important things for our democracy that are happening, right? We've got the decennial count for the census happening. Um, we've got an election coming on coming up in November. Are we as a nation ready for that? Are different states more ready than other states? Um, and then we have these foundational institutions that we sort of take for granted, but but end up being really critical for resilience right now. So local newspapers, for example, um, right before it was right at the end of February, I um, I went to a women in data science conference in the Bay Area, and I. I, I subscribed to this, the San Francisco Chronicle for that trip because I knew that I only wanted local news <laughs> when I was going into you know the, the only area in the country that currently had COVID, um, and and so I you know I, the, the importance of local news in in a situation like this where you have such different um, different impacts in different communities is essential. Um, and we, we do see that, you know, more than half of the counties in the United States right now are classified as news deserts, which, which really inhibits our ability to respond. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to, I was going to plug it and make sure people know that we're talking about the, that you're listening to COVID calls and that we're talking about the National Conference on Citizenship's Pandemic to Prosperity Report, which was just released today. And we, I want to go through some of these specific kinds of data points and why you why you chose them, Denise, but I'll cut you off. Please keep going. No, that's great. Um, so th thank you for uh, for the, uh, the the plug there. Um, so in terms of institutions, you know, in order to stay connected, people need information from local newspapers. Um, and also they need internet connectivity. You know, many doctor's offices aren't taking in-person visits. So telehealth is a way to make sure that your you know, pre-existing conditions are well-managed. Um, and so those disparities that existed before COVID, we're starting to see them exacerbated. Um, and, with the, and then complicating all of this is mis- and disinformation. So misinformation, meaning just people getting the facts wrong or, or using old facts, resharing old information. Um, and then disinformation, of course, is coordinated um, attempts to, to give Americans the wrong information to foment discord um, in our society. Um, and then lastly, we've, um, you know, what we're, what we're seeing, and these are lagging indicators, right? Is like, how are the people doing? Um, how, how are employment rates doing? Um, do, is there enough food on people's table? And, uh, you know, are, are, are people likely to um, be losing their, their housing because they aren't able to pay rent or mortgage? And so those, 
those lagging indicators of you know the outcomes on people are something we're really going to be keeping a close uh, close eye on, um, and uh, and you know and and adding to all of these indicators as as the months go on. Allison, you want to add so to that? Just to, yeah, I want to get Allison yeah. to talk a little bit about um, that and and maybe a little bit about the method of bringing these these things together. But just before we turn to that, where can people find it? It's at ncoc.org slash P2P, pandemic, with an, it's P2P with a number two. ncoc.org slash P2P. Yep. Okay. Thank you for that. Allison, let's, let's hear a little bit more about the report and why you chose the different sectors of data that you did. Sure. You know, well, with any disaster, first, you have to essentially establish the damage. Normally, you know, with a hurricane, for example, it's sort of a it's sort of a one and done event. And then we look at, you know, how many housing units are damaged or how much infrastructure is damaged, et cetera, maybe how many people died as well. Um, this is an interesting disaster because the damage is kind of churning. Right. And it has to do really with lives, but also livelihoods. Um, and so we looked at just a couple of key indicators on, you know, um, pandemic um, in terms of the lives lost and affected, as well as also, you know, how the economy is doing state by state. Um, we know those are things we'll have to keep tracking, but we also wanted to um, get the long view in there. People need to start thinking now about what direction we want to head. And so, you know, some of what we really need um, for well-being is, you know, governments and institutions that function well. And, you know, so we knew we needed to look at, you know, how this was impacting governments, right, in terms of lost tax revenue and what that's going to mean going forward in terms of representation because of um, the, their response rates to the census, right, um, in terms of their ability to have elections under pandemic conditions. Um, and then some of the other institutions that Denise talked about, like local newspapers being critical. And then, you know, and then some of what we do when we look at for these indicators, um, we're really happy that the Census Bureau produced this um, this household pulse survey so that they're weekly putting out data on how people are faring in the pandemic. Normally when the census produces data, you know, they'll collect it, say all of 2019, and then they'll release the 2019 data in 2020, September, right? And in this situation, that's not helpful enough, right? And, um, you know, we should give tons of credit to the Census Bureau for realizing this disaster deserved special treatment with some non-lagging indicators. So we put in some of the really high impact ones that, you know, some of what we do is a real design thinking approach where we really listen to people whose voices aren't being heard and think about, oh, how likely is that to be a lot of people? And then, yes, it's likely. So let's see what kind of data we can put toward that. So, you know, we see the news reports and we hear people struggling to get food and the long lines at the food bank. So good. The census has data on that. And we were able to put that forward. Similarly, you know, we hear about people worried about being able to pay their rent and whether they'll be homeless next month after uninsurance, uh, the, the expanded federal uninsurance, uh, unemployment benefits go away. And so the census has data on that. That's really um, very current. So those are some of the things that we can put forward so people can see like, wow, we've got to, we've got a lot to deal with here. Um, and, and we need to really think about it and not let it hit us without, um, without, without being aware of the data. So many things I like about the approach you're taking here. I mean, one, of course, is that you're, it's not 
um, it's this monthly approach. And because it's a slow disaster, we're going to need to have this kind of, we need to check in frequently, but maybe not on the 24 hour news cycle, which I think can be misleading sometimes as to what's important and what's, what's less important. The other is that you have, um, uh, I'm sure this is by design, but you have allowed the disaster to sort of achieve its full complexity which is that it is a, it's a democracy disaster. Um, it's an it's a inheritance of racism and policing disaster. It's a public health disaster, obviously, and an economic disaster. And so the categories you've chosen here and the way you've integrated them does justice to that full complexity, which mm-hmm. is something we need a lot more of in our thinking about disasters before, during, and after. I want to just dive in on one of these points. Um, maybe, Allison, to you, you say in the report that at least 10 states are projecting fiscal year 2020 tax revenue reductions of 10% or more. And in 2021, at least 26 states expect additional tax revenue reductions of 10% or more. I'm not an economist. And I don't um, specialize in municipal governance in quite that way. Can you translate a little bit as to why that particular data point is one that you're attentive to? Oh, sure. You know, I'm, um, I imagine everybody in Louisiana knows why that matters. And, but I bet, um, people in other states do too. You know, every year for the last, ever since the Great Recession, right? We've, we've all been really struggling, um, at the state level with the budgets. And, um, that can mean, um, you know, depending on the state, uh, a reduction, a 10% reduction, and then maybe compounded by another 10% or more reduction the following year can mean dramatic cuts to, higher ed to K through 12 schools can mean dramatic quotes to healthcare even, um, just even the stuff that we're used to receiving, let alone what the states need to do to deal with this pandemic, right? So what they need to do in terms of ramping up testing, in terms of ramping up um, the uh, contact tracing, um, or think about other disasters, right? Preparing for climate change, right? And the issues of coastal erosion in Louisiana, for example, or elsewhere, um, you know, even any kind of forward thinking is is going to be much harder for states as, as their budgets um, uh, contract like this. And so, you know, if folks um, are aware of some of the budget contractions that happened, you know, in the last 10 years because of the mostly because of the Great Recession, uh, you know, they can envision that this that we're going to have similar sorts of um real, but belt tightening isn't quite the right word. I mean, some of these cuts end up being pretty draconian. Um, and what that might mean really for, you know, kind of our societies in, in terms of, you know, what we expect from schools and universities, et cetera. You know, I think that would have been important at, at any time, but particularly, you know, we've seen with this federal response, the difficulties, the failures of this federal response to COVID-19, people might have thought in the past, well, those kinds of things will be met by a robust federal response. But every time I'm talking with more and more experts who are telling me this is a 50-state pandemic. And and in fact, within states, there are many different municipal realities facing, you know, in Pennsylvania, for example, it's being felt differently in, in different cities, even within the same within the same state, which we would like to think would be um, met with the assistance. I mean, that's what our that's what the Stafford Act is for. That's what FEMA is for, is when communities are overwhelmed to come with, with that support, but we're not necessarily seeing it. Um, I want to stick with another one of these um, points that you're making. Denise, let me ask you about this one. The majority of registered voters in nine states who did not vote in 2016 cited structural issues such as polling place hours and accessibility 
challenges. Only 19 states are well prepared for voting from home in the upcoming election. That's right, right. So terrifying what, to me, but translate <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So the um, there was a team at Brookings that did a really um, great analysis, and I want to give a, a shout out to um, to them. You know, one of the values of the work that we've done is that we bring this together. Um, but without the original researchers, we don't have it. You know, uh, we don't have the robust data to um, to uh, to publish. Um, so the um, Yes, the, the challenge with states. So first of all, when you're when you're voting, what what all voting experts say is we need safe and um, well staffed in person voting. So that's sort of the first priority. And then um, you know CDC and other other groups are recommending that we also have alternatives to in person voting. Um, and so and there are so many reasons why people. Um, people wouldn't be able to vote in person right now. So for example, they might have additional childcare responsibilities and it's hard to get out of the house. You might not want to bring a gaggle of children to the polls um, in a pandemic. Um, you um, you uh, uh, might be more worried about if you're medically vulnerable, about going out in public. Um, transportation issues, for example, um, concerns about taking public transit to the polls. Um, and and whatnot, and also the the displacement. Like if you're staying somewhere else temporarily during the pandemic because maybe you lost your job, um, or you're um, you're in a complex household where um, you're you're trying to to not in, you know you're a, a frontline worker and you're trying to not infect your children, you might be staying somewhere else temporarily. Um, so all of those reasons make voting from home more important. And um, so the, the Brookings team that did this analysis um, looked across 14 different metrics and rate and scored um, the readiness for, for at-home voting across those states. And I, I highly recommend uh, clicking through on the link to visit their report directly um, to, to dive more into that issue. Okay, so that's an important one. Let's grab one, one more of these, maybe um, Allison or Denise either that wants to take it. I mean, it's one that may be getting the most um, media coverage, but at the same time, often in the absence of these other metrics that you're bringing in, only five states, I didn't realize it was so few, all in the Northeast are currently making progress towards the White mm -hmm. House opening up America. Guidelines with the majority of states either trending poorly or facing uncontrolled spread of the virus. Um, Allison, I don't know if you want to speak to to that one, I mean, that's uh, that's more it, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I'll give it to Denise. Or Denise, yeah, 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 one. yeah. We divided up the indicators. So just about our process, we divided oh, okay. up the indicators. So we have leads on different indicators. <laughs> uh, so this is this one was my one, um, and so epidemiologists remind remind us all the time that the White House is opening up America guidelines are really just sort of the bottom the bottom threshold um, for, for what it should take to be able to safely reopen. They, they're imperfect, but they're what we have in terms of a guideline. Um, okay, but this that, is the Fauci minimum to go back to what we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. But even given those very, very minimum stand, standards, only five states are making progress against those, those gating criteria. So that's, um, that of course is very concerning. Um, and it's a it's a, a useful like one thing we like to do with data is peg our analyses to some sort of official recommendation and then see how we're doing. So these these recommendations have not changed yet. Um, so it's 
So I think, you know, I love the work that COVID exit strategy has done to like, okay, these are the official recommendations. How are we doing? And they open it up daily. Um, daily. Uh, they they uh, refresh the data daily. I do want to say that there's been challenges with some of the data flows. Um, and this is going to become more of a problem over time. Um, you probably saw the news that the CDC um, stopped publishing their data on hospital capacity as there's a transition in reporting, hospitals reporting um, they used to report to the CDC, and now they're reporting to um, HHS. Um, so there's going to be some data gaps and potentially some declining confidence in the accuracy of the data as a result. So that's going to be something to watch really carefully. Um, but I love what's what's important for a healthy data ecosystem is to have rabid data users, <laughs> you know, who are watching this data really closely, trying to make sense of it, turn it into turn it into action. And, and they, you know, those frontline users are the first ones to notice when things start to go awry with our data supply chains. Allison, is there another uh, category of data or some, some other aspects of this that you worked on that you wanted to bring to our attention and that I think we'll reserve the last part of our discussion for questions and to talk census? Oh, sure. So, yeah, you know, there's um, there's just 15 indicators. So, you know, if... if um, uh, the folks who are watching want to dig in, um, you know, they'll find, I think, all of them equally interesting and, and compelling. You know, um, when I, I guess I'll just point out quickly that, um, you know, one in four households nationwide doesn't have access to the Internet. Um, and we don't count cell phones because that's not the same. You can't do work from home on a cell phone. You can't do remote learning on a cell phone. Um, a lot of these folks really rely on uh, typically libraries or coffee shops even. And, you know, that's obviously not available. Um, and so when you think about, you know, how we design interventions in the case of disasters, we design them based on sort of an Aussie and Harriet kind of view of a, a nuclear family where one parent doesn't work yeah, and absolutely. the other, right. And that, and that you can work from home, right? So like, Hey, everybody just go home and sure. work. And then we're just going to send your kids home too. And one of those parents is just going to take care of them. And, um, it, you know, that is one of the things we should have learned from disasters is that we come up with these policies that really are designed for a, a, a very narrow portion of our population. And our population is so much more diverse than that in terms of household structure, in terms of, you know, not having jobs that they can work remotely. So, you know, keeping in mind that one out of four households doesn't even have access to the Internet, you know, is something that we should have in mind in all of the kinds of um, policies that we create in terms of, you know, remote learning, work from home, civic participation, et cetera. You know, as you're describing this, and, and again, just to encourage people to, to grab this, this report and take a look at it and, and be sure to bookmark that page if you want to be coming back to it, I think, in the months to come. I've been thinking a lot with colleagues like Glenn Corbett at John Jay College, people who specialize in disaster and post-disaster investigation, that um, we shouldn't be waiting until after disaster is over mm. To th again, talking yeah. about the perishability of, of data. And that's why a lot of post-disaster investigations, frankly, are just exercises in elected officials congratulating each other on okaying mm -hmm. um, aid bills. I just don't think that they uh, often go as deep. And one of the problems, as you're pointing out here, is this sort of lack of attention to critical data points throughout the disaster and not just ones focused on the event. But as you've situated this here in a much broader context, I mean, I, I hope that people who are paying attention to this will take a report like yours and see this is the template for the post-disaster analysis that needs to come.
as well. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls, and we are having a great discussion here about this new report from the National Conference on Citizenship with Allison Plyer and Denise Ross. You can get your questions in to the YouTube live chat. We've had a couple comments there. You can also email me directly at sgk23drexel.edu. So um, one more point here from the report, Denise, to you, and then maybe we can turn to some census discussion. In six states, 2020 census self-response rates to date are below 56%, requiring extensive door knocking to achieve a complete count. Take from that, that's not where we need to be right now in a census year, and help us understand that. Yeah, well, um, every census is different, um, and uh, and it was even before the pandemic, it was hard to compare self-response rates this decade to the previous decade because this is the first time that we've had internet self-response options. So this time you can you can respond by phone. You can respond by internet and you you can respond by mail. Um, And then after that self-response period, um, there's something called non-response follow-up. That's the classic door knocking um, that we we associate um, with the the census. So the count is only about halfway done right now. Um, And that gap between the 62% response rate uh, self-response rate and getting to 100%, that gap is filled by field work which is of course um, tricky <laughs> in a pandemic. Nobody wants to see a government worker knock on their door right now. Um, and it's, you know, and, and the, the workforce is, um, it, for the census is often um, retired folks and uh, people who, who might um, have comorbidities that put them more at risk for the, the virus. Um, so there's a lot of headwinds um, right now. And I, that, that indicator um, is really, I, I think, one of the more immediate calls to action that we have for state and local governments and community-based organizations, that we can all play a part right now in increasing the self-response rates. Because the higher the self-response rate goes, the less door knocking we need. So you can ditch the door knock by by increasing self-response. And there's lots of things that state and local governments can do right now to reach people where they are, um, especially the hardest to reach people are often um, often the ones who might still have frontline jobs. Um, and so public transportation and other ways um, to reach them would be, oh, there goes my fire alarm. <laughs> It's dinner time, obviously. Um, So anyways, we need to get those self-response numbers up. So just to stick with this um, census question a little bit, I mean, it feels like there's so many things that are going to require their own books in the context of 2020. And the census is going to be one of them, just as you described, I hadn't quite thought of this, you know, essential workers who are not home uh, right now uh, are going to be hard to get a door knock. And they've also been probably too busy uh, to do those those self-response. I mean, do you think the data is already revealing or will reveal that there are pockets of people um, who just have not been able to respond because of the intense demands on their time in this in this pandemic? Well, there's already quite a gap um, between the the um, you know the highest self-responding state and the lowest. And then if you look at small area geographies, um, the classic hard to reach populations. Um, 
African-American populations, Hispanic populations, immigrants, um, people with people with children, um, uh, people with disabilities, people who don't speak English as a first language. Um, there's the LGBTQ, com uh, the community. All of those groups are hard to reach under the best conditions and they may just be harder to reach under pandemic conditions. Mm -hmm. So that's why, and, and the best way that you can get um, folks to respond is to have a trusted person explain to them why it's, why, uh, why their count matters and how, um, you know, how important it is, you know, for directing public health services, for example, to your community that all people are counted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and this year we've got a couple of additional challenges with um, college students having been sent home. Yeah. College students are supposed to be counted where they go to college. And um, we know that if they lived in dorms, the university um, hopefully had a good accounting for, for them. But for anyone who is living off campus, in fact, I was talking to a Drexel student just like about a week ago, and she said she sure she wasn't counted because she lives off campus and that she was going to tell all her friends because, you know, Philadelphia um, will will lose out on funding if college students aren't counted where they're supposed to be, or for Drexel in particular, uh, or for any university. And then also what's fascinating is that um, – a lot of folks who have second homes, sometimes they get overcounted. Um, they'll get counted, say, in Florida, but also their home in Chicago or whatever. Um, but in this case, a lot of folks sort of left their primary home in, say, New York City or even in New Orleans and went to their second home in a more, you know, rural perhaps location. And um, now the richest parts of New York City are having very low response rates. Um, right now. And that can really hurt New York City over time. And that's probably true for almost every city. So um, we have some really new challenges here that we need to get the word out about to get the counts to be accurate. It seems like people are going to have to take an even greater responsibility if they have the time and capacity to do it, to make sure, I mean, these kinds of problems you're describing, Allison, can, can people follow up or how does someone follow up to make sure that they've been counted yeah. accurately? You know, it's the easiest thing in the world. You, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, the website is, I'll say it 50 times, my2020census.gov. And you go on there and it, 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 the first thing it does is it asks you for, for an ID code that maybe you got in the mail. But if it, there's a link right under that. If you don't have the ID code, you just click on the link that says, I don't have an ID code. And then you just fill it in. And even if you can't remember if you filled it in before, just go on there and fill it in. It takes, that's it, exactly, my2020census.gov. It's literally, everybody who does it turns to me and they're like, oh my God, that took me like 10 minutes. I can't believe I, I, I delayed for two months doing it. I'm, I'm, really, it takes no time. You'll be okay. astonished at how little it is. Did I make a good point? My2020census.gov, just do it. And even and, and the census will dedupe anything on the back end. If So if you already answered it, They'll just figure out, oh yeah, no, this was a student off campus. She got countered by her parents. We'll delete that and they'll just they'll just sort it all out. All right. This is our incentivizing to the COVID calls community that they would take a look here. And if you're like me and you've you did it um, already early, as early as you possibly could, um, but you want to go back and just uh, double check, you're telling me I'm not gonna get a tax audit for going in and double checking my uh, my census information. It's all good. Just go back and double check it and no problem. Or just re-enter it. You won't be able to check it, but just enter it. Yeah. Just enter it. To re-enter it. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, as a historian, I love doing it. 
I mean, I love the census, obviously, because, um, mm-hmm. well, of course, it's an important role in our democracy, but also it's an important role um, for collecting data that's crucial to understand how our society changes over time. And I was thinking as we were talking about other census years in which we've been in the midst of disaster, in the midst of crisis, and there have been a few, um, 1940 comes to mind on the not at war yet, but still struggling with the Great Depression in 1970, probably a year. I mean, the middle of Vietnam and coming out of civil rights struggles. I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, I guess in the history of the census, if we've ever seen one conducted under conditions like this. Yeah. It was we? close in 1918 with the, with the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, the most historians say that the the 1918 pandemic did not impact the decennial count there. Yeah, and that was pretty well over by 1919, right? So, yeah. so again, we're sort of um, making history here in the in the midst of this in the midst of this disaster, mm-hmm. perhaps in an unexpected way. There was some news up today, headline in the Washington Post: White House seeks to bar undocumented immigrants from part of the census. Um, I've been paying attention to the census, at least the last two cycles. I don't remember it being something that the white house usually has anything to say about much. Denise, translate this headline. uh, In fact, um, today we, um, in my work at Georgetown, we just released a web, a website report at apportionment.info. And uh, we had uh, my research analyst, Taylor Savell, did um, a lion's share of work to pull together historical documentation from the last century of apportionment. Um, and what we found through that research was that every decade, it's just a procedural handoff from the, the Census Bureau to the Department of Commerce to the president to Congress and then to the, um, the announcement to the, to the governors. Um, so there's uh, what we're the, the level of um, of interference that we're seeing today is really unprecedented. Um, I'm not an attorney, but um, you know if you read the Constitution, it says it's a count of all persons, very unambiguously. And and all of the attorneys I know are saying this is um, this proposal is unconstitutional. Um, and then on the data side, I just want to point out that it's, it's really hard to count undocumented immigrants, um, like really hard. Uh, they're not documented, right? Um, so that you can't just pull administrative records on them necessarily mm-hmm. um, and pull together a um, you know, administrative record census. Um, and so any data that would be used to create, to, to create a citizens only apport- congressional apportionment um, would not be very high quality data. Definitely not um, not good enough quality to uh, to determine political representation for the United States. Just putting the link up here, apportionment.info. I have not had two guests before in the eighty six previous COVID calls that had so many links to data sets uh, in the midst of our one hour discussions. This has been a, a real. <laughs> Treat even the historians. I'm, I'm, the historians are lagging. I wonder, case the next time I have historians on, or they'll have them listing their archival sources. I'm sure. Um, so again, important for everybody to go there and take a and take a look. And that and that site is is uh, we're almost up 
on time. And um, I wanted to just ask you a question since you've signed on here to do um, a, a set of studies that's going to have a longitude to it. Um, how are you keeping, I guess a little bit of a personal question, personal professional question. How are you keeping your stamina in this time? <laughs> I've asked this question of people in public health and other professions. Um, what is it that's giving you the stamina you need to keep pushing with this? This is sort of our, our last, last question for the conversation. Allison, could I start with you? Oh my goodness. Well, I guess I'll, I'll say two things. I'm lucky enough to live in New Orleans in, um, in a condo building that has a swimming pool. And I try to get in the swimming pool every weekend at least. Um, Cause it's just hot as blazes here and that's helpful. Um, uh, but also I think it's important for everybody to like either have like to, to just get a change of scene. I'm a big proponent. I'm telling you, I had found it very helpful. I got away for a couple of weeks, even though I worked just a different scene, get into nature um, I think that if, if it's possible, you know, do that, even having that to look forward to having something to look forward to really, really helpful. Good advice there. And Denise. Yeah. And what, um, this certainly, I know Allison and I experienced this during Katrina. Um, it's so good to have a sense of purpose when the world is just a swirling mess around you to be like, ah, here's, like, here's one thing I can mm. do to help make yeah. things better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that, that's just such, it's, yeah. um, it's a really important feeling for me when I'm in these types of situations. Um, and the other thing that I find really helpful is to systematize things. Um, so for example, publishing pandemic to prosperity, it was, you know, uh, it was a, 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 a challenging process this first time, but the next time it's going to be so much easier um, because we'll put in place processes um, so that, that uh, you know, to, to reduce our burden. And so I've taken that sort of system systemizing, systematizing approach to both my personal life and my professional life. And, and that certainly is a, a huge gift. Systematizing, keeping an eye on that purpose and self-care, all really good advice mm -hmm. from you here. Thank you so much for your time. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID Calls, and COVID Calls is on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow on COVID Calls, we're going to have a great discussion with Jared Thorpe and Donnie Lukisis, the inventors of the map room, and we're going to be talking about mm. COVID-19 and geography and people's own experiences with changed geography, which is going to be really profound and interesting since so many people have been much closer to home. And this is going to be an interactive session, so please do join us. We're going to make some maps tomorrow. We'll be wow. here for that at 5 o'clock. Oh, wow. um, and uh, Allison and Denise, I, um, thank you so much for your time, and we're going to need to have you back uh, at some point as more of these reports accrue. Yeah. Happy to come back. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Okay. Stay healthy, everyone. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Thanks. Bye.